southwest Utsira and north northeast Utsira, wind southwest, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll, westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM. We're here as usual to look at the arts, the culture and the people of East London, but about issues that go way beyond the East London borders. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Nia Charpentier and I'm here with Pearl Wise and Julia Klein. Hello, as ever we have a great show coming up. Live in the studio tonight we have the City Impro, who will be telling us all about the improvised comedy festival happening in Shoreditch later this month. And hello from me. We have singer and guitarist Felix from the band Curse of Lono joining us in the studio for a live session later. And we'll be hearing the latest propaganda podcast exploring data and our relationship with it. And one of the many arrival to London stories from a new audio series about migration called Something to Declare. Plus, it's a very important date in the Resonance calendar. It's the annual fundraiser, um, because this fantastic station relies on the generosity of you, its listeners. So later we'll be telling you how you can get involved and how you can win yourself some rather interesting prizes, including um, Frank Zappa's head in wax, cheese tasting, brunch at the Oxo Tower, and lots, lots more. But first, with us now in the studio are Swava and Anna from City Impro, uh, an improvised comedy group who we've had on the show before, actually, but they're back to tell us about a festival of all things improvised comedy that's coming up in Shoreditch very soon. So, guys, welcome back. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> um, so, we've had some, some, some of you on before, yes. but you've grown over, over the years. How many of you are there in total now? Uh, there are about 12 of us in total now. Okay. So a pretty good number. Um, so I'm, the, the last time it must have gone well since you invited us back. <laughs> Hopefully we didn't yeah. destroy anything. Well, I'm, I'm, I was saying to these guys before, I'm kind of in awe because it's, for me, it's my idea of, of horror, you know, being, being for, you know, having to be funny without any preparation. It's just... A scary thing, isn't it? It can, it can be. It actually reminds me of a, a Jerry Seinfeld joke about uh, people's number one fear being public speaking, number two being death. So they'd rather be giving the eulogy than being in the casket at a funeral. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, f for me, it's it's I consider it a teachable skill. Yeah, I, I would definitely say it's something you can learn. So even though you come on stage and you haven't really prepared the material you've learned you can learn techniques on how to sort of you know work together as a group and work together as a team and just build something from nothing and it's actually really um satisfying when you do it and something comes out at the end which is either really funny or really moving or mm. just interesting has it helped you in kind of real life situations yeah absolutely definitely in uh, public speaking uh, yeah. presentation situations and just yeah, yeah, lots of different ways of just looking at life from a funnier lens. <laughs> yeah, That's and also, helpful. yeah, and just to sort of as well, um, I think you sort of just become more um, 
you just see I, I always see like oh there's a there's a possibility for like connecting with anyone anywhere like you can just talk to people and you look almost like learning how to communicate better and how to listen better so mm. those are all really usable skills yeah, yeah absolutely and I mean improv is fundamentally about like, taking someone's idea and accepting it as if it were the best idea in the world ever <laughs> you know there, there are no bad ideas in improv because you, you don't have the time to, to say cut okay I'd rather do it some other way you just have to be like yes mm. I am a horse thank you let's just run with that or whatever the suggestion may be Uh, so it's actually a really wonderful sort of opening exercise and yeah getting to becoming more accepting of different people's input yeah (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I was trying to think of sort of famous improv comedians and I can't really think you know the comedians that I go to see they, they, you know, they craft these shows over months and years and you go to see them at various stages well you've heard of Tina Fey right? Hmm. And Amy yeah. Poehler, okay. uh, and uh, Dan Aykroyd, and Chevy Chase, and Mike Myers. So I think the comedians. the yeah the in I think in England it's less so the case that people sort of start in improv and then move on mm. from there to become very famous comedians. But in the states as well, like Will Ferrell, I think like a lot of co- comedians or actors have started in improv or have an improv background. So oh, it's okay. just yeah. But even in the UK, you've got people like Paul Merton who are who are improvisers uh, and Josie Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of those yeah. Kind of there was a very famous show on Channel Four called "Whose Line Is It Anyway?" Yes. And that, yes. Yeah, and you and know that, that's kind of the big start of yes. Improv and that music. format is almost exactly our format as well. So we do mm-hmm. a show very similar to that, except we do it live on stage, mm-hmm. uh, and they do it they do it live in front of an audience. But they get to they do it for two hours, and then they pick out the best half hour of that okay. of that set. Great. So tell us about this festival that's coming up. So yes, um, so we've decided, like as a group, we're going to organise a, a festival, and it's going to be in Shoreditch. Um, it's in a pub uh, called the Waterford, which is very close to Liverpool Street Station. And um, we've basically invited thirty groups um, to come along. They're all improvisers from London, and they do all sorts of different types of improv. So we'll have like musical improv, um, sort of short form sketches, slightly longer plays, and um, we've just brought everyone together. And it's next weekend on the nineteenth, twentieth. 21st yep. um, there's 12 shows in total and um, you can just come along get tickets start from £5 which you can get on our website um, Great. yes and actually if you've ever wanted to try your hand at Impro uh, in a very friendly uh, safe place there is a workshop also during the day on the Saturday okay. and then on the Sunday there's uh, a walking tour of Shoreditch that we call uh, BS University or, or BS Tours uh, and it's a walking tour of Shoreditch graffiti where they will uh, walk around Shoreditch, uh, explain uh, made-up things about the graffiti there, uh, which is really, really good fun. We've done them, actually, uh, those tours, we've done them at the British Museum. We've done them uh, at the VNA mm-hmm. uh, as well. Uh, but now we're doing it locally in Shoreditch uh, of, of the graffiti there. Uh, BS and not the... Because uh, I don't think we're allowed to swear. I'm, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious <laughs> of that. <laughs> yeah. Right, so you're going to do a bit of a sketch for us now? Uh, yes, so we thought we, we could play a game, uh, which is a game we actually play quite often on stage as well, which is called um, Two-Headed Expert. And the way it works is that you guys are, we're going to, Slava and I are going to be an expert in a made-up thing. So first from you, we're going to need the thing we're an expert in. So do yes. you have any ideas for like any item, any object? So we'd like to, uh, so this, we're, so we're, Ina and I are going to speak at the exact same time. Uh, we're going to speak as if we were one person. So you're interviewing one person, and we've invented something, yeah. uh, something crazy. So uh, let's just get a, a normal household object or anything that we could have invented. Um, what 
Just an object? Any just any object, any yeah. object you can think of in okay, the universe. Okay, a piano. A, a piano. piano. Yeah. Okay, and what's a, th- what's a thing that a piano normally doesn't do where you would say, okay, that's a really weird piano? Clean the floor. Okay. okay. Yeah, so... We have now, we are now an expert, Sav and I, mm-hmm. and, and we've invented a piano that can clean the floor. And you can ask us any question you'd like about that. Okay, so how does this work? The, well, the, the piano, piano it takes the keys, keys and then brushes them on the floor. <laughs> Wow, that's so clever. <laughs> and um, I saw I saw an advert. Uh, remind me again what your slogan is. Yes. yes. Our, Our slogan is... Mm, my piano cleans the floor. I'm not sure if I'm going to buy into this piano it's not a very catchy slogan um how about a singing campaign is there anything like that yes Yes, of of course course there is we have a piano that operates as a mop Wow. <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> and, and where are you going to be selling this uh, wondrous item? We will be selling it in music stores and also hardware stores. <laughs> that makes sense. I heard um, you got into Walmart recently. How did you do that? We came and we sang and they loved us. <laughs> Thank you. So um, I think we'll end there, but, you know, how are you going to get people to buy this wonderful uh, floor-cleaning piano. What's wrong with a mop? Yeah, why, I mean, why would you have both? What's the point? We want people to play able to play an instrument and clean at the same time. <laughs> Makes total sense now. I get it. I'm in. What do you think, Nia? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> both of you, both heads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, all the details for uh, the City Impro Festival are on cityimpro.com. Uh, yes. And um, that's at the Water Poet next weekend. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. So not this coming weekend. Uh, so weekend after that. Uh, yes. 19th, 20th and 21st. Yes. And you can actually just go onto your search engine of choice and look up Shoreditch Impro Festival. And uh, if you don't want to memorize uh, websites, <laughs> just look us up on the, on the Googles, on the interwebs, yeah. uh, and you'll find it right there. Thanks so much for Thank coming you. in. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, as 
the search engine of the choice would probably help um, with my next question. Um, I wanted to know, what do you guys know about Tourette's syndrome? Frankly, not much. Not a great deal. It's, uh, it's kind of been typecast in a, in a kind of certain way. But yeah, not, not too much. Yeah. For me, I always thought of it as the swearing disease because mm -hmm. that's kind of how it's depicted, how it's um, portrayed in um, films and TV series. And it turns out that it's quite a limited picture and it actually took a superhero to change my perception. And I've met Jess Tom a while ago, or her alter ego Tourette's hero. Hedgehog, Biscuit. Um, I'm Jess, I'm an artist, Biscuit writer and part-time superhero. Biscuit. I also have Tourette's syndrome, a neurological condition that means I make movements and noises I can't control. Biscuit, and you'll be able to hear one of my most frequent Biscuit ticks. Biscuit, Biscuit, Hedgehog and Hedgehog. Cats and cats. <laughs> hey! Can you tell us more about your superhero, Alter Ego? So Biscuit, um, yeah, Tourette's Hero is um, an alter ego and an organisation, Biscuit, that I created um, just over five years ago, Biscuit, in response to my experiences living with Tourette's. Biscuit, uh, up until that point, I'd seen Tourette's as my problem, Biscuit, but through Tourette's Hero, I came to see it as my power, in fact, my superpower. Um, Biscuit Cats, and I came to appreciate the humour and creativity and Biscuit, strange concepts that exist biscuit because of my unusual neurology and our mission is to share that with as many people as possible and to change the world biscuit one tick at a time hedgehog cats one way of you sharing your experience is twitter i am a follower and, and enjoy your tweets about your tick what is the, the general response you get to that we get a really positive response to that and um, biscuit one of the when we sort of started uh, Tourette zero as an organization biscuit we realized very quickly that actually Tourette's and Twitter were made for each other. Like Tourette's comes up with like short 140 biscuit ideas or concepts all the time. So sharing them across that as a social media platform felt really relevant. Biscuit, particularly as prior to that, I used to know that I could find myself on Twitter when people were talking about me. So sometimes I had negative experiences in public space, and I could biscuit people would write about me on Twitter and quote my ticks back, which are very personal and very identifiable. So to be able to use that same platform, biscuit to share the funny, humorous and weird, surreal ideas that were coming out because of my tics. Felt a really powerful place to be. Can you tell us any more about the project you're working on? Yeah, I'm about to take my show backstage in Biscuitland, which is a theatre stage show that celebrates Tourette's and shares my journey and talks about theatre itself. I'm about to take that back to the theatres. So that's a really ongoing, exciting project. The Hedgehog, Cats. Um, I've also been, yet. Yeah, been doing lots of interesting collaborations with artists and scientists and they're sort of at early stages so those are really intriguing things on the horizon I think. Can you sum up for us what you want people to know about Tourette's? I'd like people to know that there's lots more Tourette's than swearing. Biscuit, I'd like people to know that being neurodiverse can bring amazing opportunities as well as challenges. Biscuit, and I want people to know for themselves that if something isn't working for them, Biscuit, they have the power to change it and that together we can create a more inclusive world and inclusive communities and we should do and it works makes it makes things better for everyone if we do that that was Jess Tom and I was really impressed by um, her idea of a diverse society coming together and just another perspective on disabilities um, what did you think I was it was interesting so when you were talking to her she did keep saying biscuit the whole time but you hardly notice it that it just kind of comes in it's really subtle 
Um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's quite interesting to actually hear that kind of happening in the interview. Yeah, yeah. you begin to filter it out. So at first, it's, yeah. it's kind of a bit surprising. You don't really know what to what to make of it. But then she explains, and you actually understand where this come mm. where this is but coming from. Yeah, but it's great. You know, she's she she's going out and um, you know doing all her public speaking and stuff like that, and just normalizing it because it's. Because I imagine it's, I don't know the stats, but I imagine it's much more common than we probably think it is. Yeah, and I didn't know that it comes in so many different diverse forms. Mm. Because Biscuit and Hedgehog is just way more friendly than <laughs> I've ever seen any Tourette being um, portrayed in, in films, for mm. example. Yeah, it's true. It's usually swearing and rudeness. Yeah. 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 So they've got an event coming up soon? Yeah, lots of events. As Jess said, she's um, bringing her show back on the stage and there's one event in London in um, Battersea at the Battersea Arts Centre and that's on the 6th of March and it's actually their um, birthday celebration and they describe it as an inclusive accessible biscuit birthday extravaganza (laughs) which I really liked and apparently it's including performances, activities and refreshments and people of all ages are welcome and yeah, Jess is touring with the show around the UK and the London dates are the 29th of March um, at the Albany Theatre in London and the 15th and 16th of April in uh, London again, of course, uh, at Arts Depot. Great. And you've also um, been doing some other exploring in, in <laughs> East London this time. Yeah, I came across um, an event. So the Institute of Imagination is holding... Um, the Festival of Imagination at Chats Palace in Hackney over the weekend. And I was so intrigued by the name that I actually tried to find out more about it. And I talked to Tom, who's the Associate Director for Learning, Innovation and Digital Programs at the Institute of Imagination. We're creating an exciting environment where children's ideas can come together and they can thrive in a space. We really want children and their families to come and apply their imagination across the multidisciplinary areas from the arts, the sciences, to technology. And really what that means is getting hands-on, fostering invention, thinking about how ways in which you can be enterprising, and thinking about ways in which you can experiment and apply new skills. So we're going to be working with a whole range of really exciting partners that we've worked with to create the Festival of Imagination from organisations that are very local to Chat Palace. who are going to come in and do quite craft-based activities. So we have a local makerspace called Machines Rooms Lime Wharf. They're going to be creating an installation with children and families of a colourful spring forest that will start from scratch. And over the weekend, over the two days, uh, will emerge uh, as a fantastic forest. We're going to be working with a, another local Hackney-based organisation called School of Noise. And then we've also, being in Hackney, we've also got some more kind of technology-focused organisations. So all this week with schools, but also on the weekend, we're working with a couple of technology startups who are um, called Carnot and Blipper. And they look at a number of different things from the augmentation of reality children will get a chance to think about the layers that can go on top of an image or an object. Um, by holding a smart device or a tablet to it, you can add a, a range of different channels of information. And uh, augmentation uh, and virtual reality are things that are becoming quite big in our society. So we want children to try and understand that. What does it mean for them and for their education and for their future? So we've really got a real range of activities across the arts, the sciences, 
um, and the technology sectors. You definitely convinced me to come, but are there still tickets available? Yes, so for the Festival of Imagination, we still have tickets available and we're really encouraging people to, to book online so that we know who's coming when. It's really easy to do through an event page. Um, so you can go to our website, www.ioi.london, and if you just click on the Festival of Imagination, you can go through. And tickets are free, so uh, you can book a slot. So if you're thinking of coming, please get online. The tickets are, are going fast. Yeah, so get your tickets at www.ioi.london. And join me at Chats Palace over the weekend because I will definitely be there. You're listening to East Coast Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Don't forget you can get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook at East Coast Show. And um, all our interviews and music uh, are also on iTunes and eastcastshow.com. Thanks, Nia. Over the past few months, I've been working on a project called Something to Declare, a collection of recordings of people's arrival stories to London. It could be their own story, the story of their parents or grandparents. As the wonderful thing about London is most people do come from somewhere else, so they do have something to declare. Malcolm Kay grew up in East London, but his grandmother came over from Poland uh, with his mother as a babe in arms. Here's his story. My name is Malcolm, Malcolm Kay, and at the moment I live in um, Lower Clapton, E5. Born in Stepney, um, E1, in 1944. Yes, with um, a mother and a brother. My mum came to Stepney via Poland. She was brought over by her parents, who were Polish-Russian descent, and I've never really discovered why. No one actually told me whether they were running away from something, whether they wanted a better life, or that, whether they had options and choices or not. So I had no idea. My mother never really spoke about it very much. I think she was far too busy bringing up two boys in, in, um, in the slums, really, down in Stepney. I think a lot of the immigrants at that time, uh, I mean, in fact, most of the people when I was a kid in Stepney, uh, I, I mean, I was surrounded by mostly, and I suspect um, if one looked at the, uh, the actual facts and figures, the vast majority of people in the 40s and early 50s in the East End in Stepney um, and further up, to, going up even towards Hackney, but mostly in Stepney, um, were Jewish, in fact, which is what my mother was. And, and as far as I, I know and as far as I remember, um, many Jewish immigrants um, stayed in the East End purely and simply because of the docks down there. Um, uh, they didn't have the money to start travelling immediately. They would have to get off the boats and, um, and, and start work and start a, a, a life and raise their children, uh, which is what I, I assumed happened. And just thinking of my own childhood, I was surrounded by people setting up um, um, food shops and fruit stalls and markets and um, tailoring which, and all those occupations were, um, were very Jewish occupations although it's very interesting that a number of years later when new influxes of immigrations um, came over to Stepney uh, they took up the mantle as Jewish people started moving out and became tailors and setting up workshops and took over the markets. As a kid um, obviously it was nothing, nothing like it was for my mother. For my mother it was purely and simply just very hard work, um, bringing up two kids in, in derelict 
home, basically, um, and without it sounding too sort of almost Monty Python. I mean, um, uh, you know, not having a bathroom and not having heating. And um, I think one of my one of my f fondest memories was um, of having a bath by standing up in in the sink, and occasionally someone would walk by, which um, has had a lasting impression upon me, really. So eventually, we got a, an old zinc bath. But those sorts of things, I don't think affected me that much because I was too because I was young. I remember, I remember lots of things that sort of have flooded back. In fact, in the last ten years, um, the things that, the things that are sort of both <laughs> sad yet emotionally quite satisfying, like. Um, like the like the smells of markets and like uh, like an old lady um, down down Watney Street Market um, with an enormous basket and from this basket was selling hot bagels, um, which she would get from various. I mean, I know of a, I remember at least three bagel bakeries, which would make. Um, bagels throughout the night so you know as, as I grew old and became a teenager you would go to um, the whiskey go go in Wardour Street and um, let off a bit of steam and then come back at three o'clock in the morning and go to one of the all-night bakeries they, they were really nice warm memories but going back to um, when I when I was younger one of the main things that I remember when we left the East End and came up to Hackney uh, which was in 19 when I just started I left school which was 15 16 years old one of the striking things I remember of going back um, half a dozen years later to where I was brought up in, 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 a, in a slum tenement, I think they were called tenements, was that the, the then government had taken down many of the slum buildings. Many people, they moved out of the East End, went to new towns, went, many people went to Essex and places like that. But where I lived they had put up a high-rise flats. I think it was 28 storeys high. And I remember going, just having exploring, really, just for nostalgic reasons. And I'm mostly a young man myself, really, only uh, in my early 20s. I'd come up to um, Upper Clapton. And when I, when I went back there, and, and I felt really good that the slum building that I was in, I was brought up in, had gone, and decided to have a look at this high-rise flat of 27, 28 storeys. Thinking about the kids that live there now, then, at that point. And the first thing I did was go in the lift, and there was a lot of crap in the lift, and urine and stuff, and lots of the walls were being graffitied. I remember going up in the lift, and eventually when I came out, the feeling I got was far worse than the feeling I got when when I lived in the slums, and then I then I began to realise that if someone of my age, when I was living in, in bad housing, of you know four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, was up here, there would be nowhere for them to play at all, absolutely nowhere, because there was nowhere downstairs. Nothing had been provided for the people. Uh, to, for kids to play, whereas I played on, even if it was only ruins from from World War Two. I mean, it was still a play area. I remember uh, various places I, I used to play. Um, one of the big ones being going to a boys' club, 
Um, in fact, there were there were at least three I can think of offhand uh, that, that, that all my friends went to. It was either Maccabi, St George's in the East, or Brady Boys Club. Um, I think there were also mixed clubs. I just can't remember. But there was always something to do. And just in this... Being up in the sky on 28 storeys high, I remember th seeing a, a, a few kids uh, running around sort of concrete pathways up there. And it did cross my mind that actually in terms of what they would be getting, the sort of enjoyment they would be getting from being creative and being free and playing would actually be far, far less than I was able to get when I was a kid. But things were supposed to have been better 10 years later. They weren't. And it seems to be a sort of recurring thing that happens in, in this country, um, or maybe other countries, that for a moment in time, we think things are really going to get better. And then suddenly you realise 10 years later, they're not better, for, certainly not for young people, and certainly not for many working-class people either. I sort of rejected religion generally, not just uh, Ju uh, Judaism, but all religions, um, um, soon after I was 13, in fact, when I'd had what's known as my bar mitzvah. But there are some interesting aspects about the whole Jewish thing and religion, I think, of the time. And that is the thing that I enjoyed about it then, which is vaguely coming back now 50 years later to me, 60 years later, um, as, as I get older, uh, to do with memories and emotional things. And that is... My attachment is an emotional thing. That's all it is. It isn't anything else. And, and a nostalgic thing. The things I remember very clearly, apart from those clubs I mentioned, but they organise things which I have never seen since for young people. Games, sports, holidays, clothes, uh, communication, canteen, ideas, different classes for being creative. The same clubs certainly two of them, the Brady, uh, Oxford and St George's and Brady's, also had annexed to it, or downstairs to it, a synagogue. Um, and all religions have similar things, I guess. And, you know, I, I'm just talking about the Jewish thing because that's what I experienced. But I'm sure Muslims and Christians had very similar things going for them. But certainly not, I don't think, at that time. Uh, but there would be things like the holidays, which would be um, a celebration of community as much as it was the sort of thing that people talk about today that, 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 which we had lost uh, but it is interesting that th those community feelings um, and by the way I'm not excluding other religions by talking about the Jewish thing because I, I had many non-Jewish friends and there was a sort of acceptance of what was going on which I mean I actually experienced very little anti-Semitism when I was a kid I, I I experienced a little bit of it, but, there were, but in a way, it never really got through. There were always, there were always more people, maybe because they were Jewish, but there were always more people to counteract it. Or, or if it did raise its head, it never became vicious, it, not for me anyway, or interfered with the community as a whole. It was almost like the community as a whole came to, its, to my defence in a way. That was the feeling. So the people that were either prejudiced or, or, or biased in some way were not only outnumbered, they were also made to feel really stupid. So they really didn't, never won anything. The Polish thing has only became 
of a sort of intellectual interest in me rather than emotional interest because my mother never really spoke about it very much. And that could be because she didn't feel particularly Polish herself uh, because she was a baby when she came over here. Jewish people were talking about the Holocaust an awful lot. Um, and as a kid, I think I got to a point where I... I that identifying with Poles was not something that I immediately... My, my growing uh, feelings and emotions didn't immediately say, oh, I identify with, with Polish people who have just been gassed in the chambers. I don't think my childhood brain went there, so I sort of didn't actually find... get much information about it, you know. But, of course, found out about much more as I grew up. So that was Malcolm Kay um, with his something to declare story um all these stories have been embedded into a map and you can listen to more um at something to declare.co.uk and if you want to record your own arrival story do get in touch via twitter at east car show or on via our website eastcarshow.com now, where could you get your hands on a Frank Zappa waxwork, signed artwork, designer clothes, brunch at the Oxo Tower? Well, you're in luck because you can win all those things right here, all part of the Resonance 104.4 FM annual fundraiser. So between 13th and the 21st of February, there'll be special broadcast, VIP guests, live events and um, an online auction with some pretty good prizes uh, to be won, and that those eBay, eBay auctions are live as of today. So get bidding, because uh, Resonance relies on the generous generosity of its listeners. So dig deep. I'm going to be bidding uh, for the Shape AV Festival or the Other Worlds Festival passes, because they're also up for auction. Although, a Frank Zappa waxwork head... <laughs> You're tempted. I'm tempted. It could look good on my um, imaginary mantelpiece. <laughs> and I meant to say the uh, the link there is fundraiser.resonance.fm, but we'll tweet that out so you'll get to see that. So we're now joined by Felix from the band Curse of Lono. Welcome, Felix. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Um, so there's absolutely no way we could fit the whole band into the studio. No, I it's, think we would have struggled with that. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a tricky one. So you're here to represent the whole band. We'll try. Um, and you're going to play something. So it's a very stripped-down taster of uh, of what you do. Exactly. So what are you going to play I'm for I'm going to play a song off the, uh, off the album called Pick Up the Pieces. Okay, thanks. Take it away, Felix. <laughs> You've been saying There's no worse thing The sisters crying in their sleep Dying on their feet To take you home Daddy's thinking And I've been drinking My way back to you My way back to you So waiting for your hand on my heart 
Thanks, Felix. And I have to emphasize that was a very stripped back version. That's very stripped down. Yeah. yeah I yeah. think at the end of the show, if you play another track, you'll you'll hear the full band versions. We will, because it's, track, it sounds yeah. pretty different, actually. With it all, does. This is, um, I don't know, it's got much more of a kind of Bob Dylan feel to it. I, well, think. I think the the way a lot of the tracks are written is very much as acoustic, sort of folky country songs. And then we deconstruct them and, and see how we can mess about with them and see what we can do with them. So I've read somewhere, I think on your press release, someone, I, I don't know whether this comes from you, but okay. it's just, you, you're described as um, the, uh, sounding like the band and the Pixies having a Tupperware party and then Leonard Cohen setting the house on fire. Now, I was pretty intrigued by that. It's, uh, That's what happens <laughs> when you put five people in a room with a bunch of beer and you try and work out <laughs> what's going to attract people's interest. Definitely got sparked my interest for sure. <laughs> and Tammy, um, so your name obviously has got um, some significance. Who's the Hunter S. Thompson fan in the group? That's definitely me, I think. So how did that happen? Uh, well, we were recording the album and I was actually reading the book at the time. And um, we were throwing names around and we just thought that was quite a cool name. And it was a, it's not Hunter S. Thompson's best book, but I think the whole idea of this Hawaiian fertility god, um, it, it was just quite a cool idea and we, we, we sort of got stuck with it. So tell us a bit more for those who, who haven't read the book or know anything about the well, Curse when, of Lona. According to the book, when Captain Cook um, arrived in Hawaii, the, apparently the locals thought he was the, the god Lono reincarnated and they treated him like a god for a while and he took advantage of that and in the end they killed him. And then when Hunter S. Thompson arrived many years later, um, off his head doing crazy things that Hunter S. Thompson does, he got it in his head that the locals once again thought he was Lono reincarnated. But I think that was that was just in his head. 
<laughs> probably. Yeah. And probably due to all the psychedelics that were um, streaming around his bloodstream at that moment, I think. Yeah. Um, so um, there's obviously some Americana inspirations here. That kind of, um, is there a fascination with the, the style of music? Are any of you American or is it just a, a None about of us that? are American. I lived out there for a while and I was in a band previously called Hey Negrita where we were very much into that kind of music and it was much more of a bluegrass, um, sort of folky, rootsy vibe. Um, and I did that for many years and we did a lot of touring. We released four records and then things started to change and it was very uncool when we were doing it. We used to get laughed at at festivals for turning up with a banjo and an accordion. And then things changed and I think nowadays every cool band in London's got a some kind of a roots instrument, a fiddle or a banjo or something in it. <laughs> so we stopped for a while and I had to sort of reinvent. I'd written another album for that band and then when that sort of fell apart, I decided to reinvent the sound a little bit and went in with a producer friend of mine who does very different kind of music and we just had a, we just had a bit of fun with it. So you prefer to be kind of against the general stream rather than flowing with it? Well, I don't know. I, I tried very hard to champion that kind of music and... Once it had arrived, which, you know, I don't know if I had anything to do with that at all, but once it became very popular, I sort of, you know, there was a lot of people who were doing it at least as good, if not better than me, and then you have to think of something else. You know, I don't think I could add that much more to the conversation at that point. And are you the, are the same members of the band in this? Because no, you're got, quite a new band, Yeah, very you? new. Uh, I've got the same drummer. I don't think right. I can do it without him. We're always roommates when we go on tour. Um, but the rest of the band are all new and we're having a lot of fun together. So you've just recorded your yeah. debut album. Yeah. Um, does it have a name yet? No, it's just Curse of Lono. That's all, okay. that's all we know. <laughs> <laughs> and any release dates? Nothing at the moment. We, we were very careful not to rush into anything like that. Um, we've been playing a few gigs recently very quietly without really doing a lot of promotion just to get really tight on stage and just to get used to each other and we're now starting to push it a little bit and we're just going to see where it takes us i think the the industry's sort of changed moved on a bit and i think it's you you need to build it slowly you don't want to jump into things too quickly I think that sounds like good advice for anything. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've actually got a gig coming up very soon. Yeah. Um, tell us about that. Uh, we're, it's our first headline show in London, and it's at the Underbelly in Hoxton. And um, we've got some old friends from that I used to play with years ago who are opening for us. We've got the Epstein from Oxford um, who have toured all over Europe and do, doing very well. Um, we've got a singer called Richard Neuberg who used to front a band called Via Rosa who's playing and another band called The Paper Boats. And it's going to be a nice evening of quite mellow and rocky Americana roots, southern rock, gothic rock, all that kind of stuff. I think it's going to be a really strong lineup. And we're, we're, yeah, we hope we get a few people down and, and have a bit of a party. Sounds good. And we've actually got a couple of guests guest list places yeah absolutely um that we were we we're happy to give away um courtesy of felix thank you <laughs> so much um so all we are asking you to do is to um tweet us Neil, is that yes. yeah so at east coast show 
And we just have a very easy question. Where does the name Curse of Lono come from? And if you were listening, <laughs> you would know. <laughs> Not shame on you. It's a exactly. trick question. <laughs> it is a trick question. So thanks so much, Felix, for coming in and joining us. Thank you so much for having me. playing. And we will play something from the full band at the end of the show. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, uh, regular Eastcast listeners will know that um, I've been involved with an event called Propaganda, where we pop popular notions floating around the zeitgeist. Last month, we took a pop at Data, and that was live at Somerset House as part of their Big Bang Data exhibition. Exit freedom of thought. The time is not yet. Let us pray that it never happens. Can we agree that capitalism is an economic system? A system for the production and distribution of things we need and want? If you treat her right, she might make you a darn good employee. What's the answer? Is it money? Or is it magic? It defies any code of morality. Let me be clear. As we speak, people everywhere are battling a mysterious psychoneurological condition. One that can only be described as disturbing. We are in a relationship with technology, an intimate, extraordinarily intimate, emotive relationship. If you've ever seen someone with flat batteries or no reception clasping their now useless phone, you realize that us and technology is not a rational business. Tom Chatfield is a tech philosopher. He writes books and articles as well as doing consultancy and broadcasting around tech. Back in the prehistoric days of the 20th century, we thought that computers and data were about people sitting down at big, heavy computer terminals and projecting themselves into cyberspace. And we so easily fall into the trap of referring to ourselves through the lens of the technology that we've created. And it's kind of this Alice in Wonderland type of mirror that's seductive because it gives us answers that we want, that I think often fall short. Natalie Nahai is a web psychologist and author, and she also hosts the Guardian Weekly Tech Podcast. We often talk about digital as if it's a separate layer we talk about intelligence as if intelligence is the pinnacle of human striving and achievement and i think one thing that gets lost in the discussion is this sense of being and existence and meaning of the three terms we're talking about data presence abstinence and data intelligence i think a data presence is obvious and there's lots of people talking about data and the ubiquity of data and the amount of data and how much it's increasing by and how we're being swamped by data. And there's also a lot of talk of data abstinence, which is the immediate response, right? There is all this data. It's making us do bad things. We need to take ourselves away from it. But actually, I think data intelligence is not talked about enough. The story of 2016 and beyond is what happens when brains and bodies, us, meets an exponentially increasing power of connectivity and data processing and storage and so on. And one of the consequences of this is that the most contested and limited resource around is human time and attention, which a lot of very clever people are being paid a lot of money to turn into their profitability. Why? Why are we so fond of social media software on our phones? Is it 
inevitable that computers will obsess us, that screens are just kind of magnetic. No, they're designed like that. And the designs are iterated on the basis of billions of bits of user data. Facebook and Twitter, among others, are best thought of as casinos designed to keep us clicking. Your time is their money. And part of the problem is your time is being priced far too cheap. So how do we first of all know what data is being expunged from us, being traded? I think there also needs to be a concept around data management. So what is it that you want to release? Who owns your data? How will companies use it to both interact with you and change what they offer you? So I think when we're looking at data intelligence, there also has to be the question of agency. Do we have agency in how our data is collected, if it's collected, how it's shared, how it's viewed? The first thing that's quite useful is what kind of hacks or tools can we use that enable us to understand actually what data we're leaking? There is an interesting mathematical tension within data capture. And that is that, broadly speaking, the amount of digital data being generated by people and the world is increasing geometrically. We're entering zettabyte territory, which sounds like science fiction. But storage capacities is not increasing geometrically. It is increasing arithmetically approximately, a little bit better. So we have a huge growing chasm between what we generate and what in the long term we're able to store. What does this mean? It means that we need to teach machines how to forget intelligently. Intelligent forgetting is the way that humans make things their own creatively. If we're bringing back biases into the equation and the way that we make meaning and the way that we seek to make sense of the world, one of the interesting things that being connected to millions of other people potentially in the world is that we have the possibility of being exposed to and connect with people who have extremely different contexts, experiences, stories, um, environments to ourselves. That we have this possibility that we haven't had on such a large scale ever before. And yet, the bias persists confirmation bias, this idea that we feel most comfortable surrounding ourselves with people who confirm our pre-existing perceptions, ideas, assumptions, hypotheses, both about ourselves and our society. And I think what the web can do, and is designed to do increasingly, if all of these systems are increasingly creating experiences that are based on your past behaviors, which reinforce those past behaviors and the motivations that gave rise to them, that we're creating unknowingly in many instances these echo chambers that prevent us from exploring across the threshold into new territory, to being challenged, to being exposed to risk, to new ideas, to new ways of being, and that that fundamentally curtails our ability to grow, to learn, to develop, to feel like we're on the edge of our knowledge. Mass literacy is only about 75, 80 years old. You know, for most of what we call human history, and recorded history, of course, is only a teeny, teeny evolutionary blip lasting 6,000 odd years. And even through those 6,000 years, a tiny fraction of humans control written and recorded and permanent culture. You know, 75 years ago, we hit a milestone of more than half of the world's adult population being literate. 
And now, hot on the heels of that, we have approximately one mobile device per human, about 7 billion. They're unevenly distributed. Europe's got lots. But there is astonishing levels of mobile access even across sub-Saharan Africa. And it really is a massively big deal because it means that most human beings are active participants in written and recorded culture. We have, for the first time, got a culture of mass participation in the informational realm. And that means that for the first time, we are kind of face to face with the fact that our thoughts don't really belong to us. We find ways to self-soothe. We are ultimately not in control of our lives or each other's lives. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know what terrible things await us. And so we blanket ourselves with technology. If I just send this happy image, if I just give myself a dopamine hit, I won't have to confront the possible shitness that is waiting for me around the corner. But it also means that we don't get to sort of sink into these deeper levels of satisfaction and flow. So we're keeping ourselves in this constant state of distraction, of, of this tiny little arousal that means that we don't really have to have the space to get bored and to feel. There is something about the way that technology is mirroring us, the way that, you know, Amazon suggests things, that's trying to kind of extend and emulate what we think in our own minds and our own spaces. In some ways, the technology acts as an extension of what we're doing, to the extent that I think it possibly is helping us understand ourselves by having an external version of what we're thinking. And I wonder whether there's a more positive spin we could have. One of the areas where, again, it's kind of this very double-edged sword but can be used potentially for great, great good is the way in which it can assess behavioural patterns that we're mostly unconscious of. When you are doing something online, take a little bit longer, put in a little bit more thought so that what you make and give and do is something that belongs to you and has you in it, that adds to the stock of what is out there. I wonder if there's a social responsibility that we all share in helping people below a certain age that may not understand fully the implications of becoming a, a data generator, if you will. Data isn't sexy unless you've got a particularly mathematical bent. We're not going to attract people into data because it's quite nebulous. And I think one of the interesting things that I heard Nico Sell talk about, in order to get people at a young age engaged with the conversation around data and around what it means to be creators of data and sharers of data, she would teach them about how to hack Facebook accounts. Should we see if we can just spy on some of your mates who've uh, since unfriended you? And suddenly you've got these kids going, God, that was easy. Well, I'm not going to share anything because if I can do it, surely my mate down the road can do it. And so it's about this sense of what is possible? How do we play? How do we start to look at the meaning in the data to get people engaged with the story, to think, actually, this is meaningful. There is a context to this. This is my real life that is being divulged here. One of our few recourses, at least to some degree, is silence, is introducing some delays before we launch into articulacy and self-broadcasting. And also, awareness that everything we do has a digital afterlife and may or may not be used against us or combined. Be explicit about what you want and how you're going to get it and just know that you have the choice. Because once you've developed a habit and once you've introduced something new into your life, then with that has come a whole other string to the data bow, so to speak. And so if we're popping notions, and if we're going to talk about DQ, then I think we need to talk about 
systems thinking, working together as richly as we possibly can to ask the best questions we possibly can of both ourselves, our biases, and the biases of the systems we're using. So Big Bang Data is still on at Summer House, uh, Somerset House and um, you can also take the very first data intelligence test that we created as a direct result of the event and um, you can do that on propaganda.co.uk and the next propaganda is back at the book club in Shoreditch asking the controversial question is the key to modern feminism about redefining male identity and that's on the 20th of March. So it's nearly time for us to say goodbye. Don't forget that the Resonance fundraiser um, is on next week and um, loads of fantastic prizes to be won. And the auction is now live. Just go to fundraiser.resonance.fm and every penny will go towards making sure Resonance can keep broadcasting. East Coast Show will be back next month on Wednesday the 9th of March, same time, same place, with more sounds and stories. We'll leave you with a track by Curse of Lono. We heard Felix earlier, but here he is with the full band. This track is called Send for the Whiskey. So good night and thanks for listening. Hold your breath and steal a kiss. You know the night is on our side. Fourteen years, twelve below, now there's nothing left to hide. Tell your ma I swear I'll write her when the time is right. Fill those arms with brick dust, babe, and won't you take me home tonight? Mm, there's nothing left to say. All strung out like Jesse James, I saw you waltzing down the aisle. Dose me up to kingdom come and let me stay there for a while. But you just got the best of me, I'll break it like a dream. Tag me up and lock me down, cause you'll be on this machine. Mm, better left alone. Cause Keeps rolling.